This episode is sponsored by State Farm. You a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Well, look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers. They're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Who's with me? Live from Joe's mom's basement, it's the Stacking Benjamin Show. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and are you ready to get your cash machine rolling? Today, we welcome the author of financial novel, The Cash Machine, Dave Mason. Plus, how's that Robin Hood app working for you? We'll talk about another Robin Hood outage on today's headline segment, and later, we'll tear into a question from Red, who's wondering if he'll have to pay more taxes during retirement if his spouse contributes to a traditional 401k. And now, two guys who mistakenly thought podcasting was a super cash machine, it's Joe and O-J-J-J-J-J-G. Nine years later, won't make that mistake twice. As we were just talking about payroll <laughs> going, well, I think it's your turn to kick in money for the team, isn't it, Joe? Thank goodness they have casinos in Detroit. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the If We Hit Double Zero, Everybody Gets Paid podcast. I'm Joe Salci. I average show money on Twitter and across the card table from me for another week. It's Mr. OG. What's happening I just ran uh, the Corktown races, uh, which are always a waste of time. The weekend before. No, man. Come on. It's the weekend before St. Patrick's Day, which is tomorrow. So happy day. Good day, mate. Yes. (laughs) Falls, falls right in. Big thanks, by the way, to Freetax USA for supporting Stacky Benjamins. For 10% off, head to freetaxusa.com forward slash SB and use code SB. That's a special St. Patrick's Day, pre-St. Patrick's Day sale. It only works right now. You have to. You but wait, there's more. Whenever right now is. You ever think about that on late night TV when they show the countdown clock? And I'm like, there is no way that, that everybody's like, okay, at 2.30 in the morning from three from 2.30 to 3 a.m. we're offering this deal only for the seven people who are awake right now. Somebody put on Twitter the other day that they're tired of the countdown clock of uh, or, or, or not the countdown clock, but the um, the spaces are limited for the webinars. Yes. It's like, no, they're not. They're like literally indefinite. <laughs> Maybe it costs a smidge more to have 10,000 people on your webinar instead of 100 people, but it's technology. It scales infinitely. 
I don't know if you know this, but there's plenty of seats online. Plenty of seats online. We got plenty of seats at this show. We got Dave Mason coming down to the basement. He wrote this novel called The Cash Machine. I love when we get to talk to a novelist. How often do we get to talk to somebody who wrote fiction? This is a love story about thinking differently about money and uh, learning what it takes to be financially independent. Dave is upstairs talking to mom right now, but first we've got a couple headlines, so let's get the party started. Hello, darlings. And now it's time for your favorite part of the show, our stacking Benjamin's headlines. First headline comes to us from Reuters. Federal Reserve cuts rates to blunt coronavirus impact. And then, of course, right after that, the markets dropped. This, of course, happened a couple weeks ago. OG, the U.S. Federal Reserve cut interest rates in a bid to shield the world's largest economy from the impact of the coronavirus. But the emergency move failed to comfort U.S. financial markets, roiled by worries about a deeper lasting slowdown. I know that uh, I was watching Jim Cramer. Cramer was talking about how wasn't that worried before. I'm worried now. Yeah, that's what I was thinking too. Like, wait, what? <laughs> they said everything's fine. No, it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. Yeah, definitely fine. But oh, okay. Don't look over here. Don't look over here. We're 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 calm. So I'm trying to refinance my house because interest rates are really great. You're speeding uh, it up. Yeah. Yeah. See, I think this is the big miss when it comes to the refinancing thing. A lot of people are looking at it from a cash flow saving standpoint. Like, oh, I can refinance my 30-year mortgage into another 30-year. I was paying 2,500, now I'm going to pay 2,000, right? Like I'm going to save 500 bucks a month or I'm going to take, and then I'm going to take that 500 and invest. Like we always talk about finance is personal, right? You have to know yourself. And let me tell you something. If I have an extra $500 in my pocket, I will not have an extra 500 in my pocket. I'm not going to magically save an extra 500 bucks a month because I've saved it in my mortgage. You know what I mean? That's just not, you know me, like that is gone, baby gone. So I have to take advantage of this in a different way. Well, it's not just you. It's a product of family of five. Because back when my kids were at home and they were your kids' age, uh, money in my wallet found a way out of my wallet. Yeah, and dysfunctional parents and siblings. And there's, you know, you know, all manner of places for it to go. It, yeah. Jet fuel, you know, et cetera. Yeah. You know, just normal stuff. Like, the no, I'm just the every guy. Airplane gas. But... Uh, so a couple of weeks ago, I'm sitting at my computer and I'm trying to redo this mortgage. And, and so I go on this credit union that we've got a relationship with and I'm sitting there, I'm kind of drumming my fingers and I'm going 2.8% for 10 years. Well, it's 2.875 actually, 10 years. See, I, like I said, I'm doing this a little bit backwards. I'm using the rate cut to just collapse the time period that I've got yeah. to pay this off. on. I yeah. mean, just saving hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars. Hold your feet to on, the fire. On the life of the loan. And I know, you know, I'm going to make my obligations. You know what I mean? Sure. We talk about this. Your life expands in the money that you allow it. Yeah. You know, we joked one time about a sales manager that both you and I had where he said, if you really want to get good at sales, go buy something you can't afford. It's super idiotic thing, but still, yes. What's true. But it's it true. true. So I'm sitting there two Mondays ago three Mondays ago, whatever it was. And I'm, I don't know, 2.875, pretty good. Rates aren't going any lower. <laughs> eh, I'm going to lock it, baby. <laughs> Boom. I locked it in. <laughs> it, no less than eight hours later, 50 basis point rate. 
Your buddy Jerome. Are you kidding me? Oh my gosh. So I talked to this other banker on Wednesday and the place where the current mortgage is. And I said, listen, every time I've called you guys and I've said, Hey, I think I want to refinance. You just say the same thing. Nah, just pay extra, take the flexibility, pay extra. I said, and her name's Tina. And I said, Tina, I it dawned on me. Why? She goes, why is that? And I go, cause you got me locked up at 4% for 30 years. You don't want my interest to go down. That's not your goal. I get it. She's like, no, no, no. We want to help you. I go, no, you don't. You want interest. But let me tell you something. This is happening. 2.875, 10 year fix. I'm already down the field with another company. Make it happen. What you got for me? She goes, but wait, OG, those are Monday rates. Today <laughs> is Wednesday. And I'm like, did it really move the market that much? She goes, yes, it did. 2.45, 10 year fixed. Drop the that's cheaper. That's cheaper than a freaking car note right now. Drop the mic. And people are looking at this from the perspective of, let me free up cash flow. Screw that. Let me get done with this as fast as possible. Like I am, I figured it all out. Hundreds of thousands, like probably the better part of four or $500,000 of interest saved. Yeah, it's more. Yeah, it's higher payment. Yeah, it's over 10 years. And I know everybody's going to write in and go be like, hey, wait a second. You should take the difference and invest it because the market's 10. I'm, I just told you I'm not going to do that. I already have that stuff. I'm doing that already. I'm not going to do more of it. I'm going to blow it. So this is how we're attacking it. But I just thought it was really funny. <laughs> that the market day. figures out a way to <laughs> disappoint the greatest number of people. That is so and I'm like, no way that the interest rates are going lower <laughs> than 2.8. And in our second headline... You saw this Robinhood outage. This comes to us from investment news. Robinhood outage underscores risks of investing in the digital age. Mm, not the risk of investing in the digital age. That's a that's not exactly true. I think it underscores uh, investing with a group of people who have proven to you four times in a row that they really don't care about you and your money. <laughs> Did you hear about? What they, at least the last story that I read about this, I paid almost no attention to it, but I did catch a few things. Did you see what they said? The re Like somebody like look at the code? No, but before we get to that, why don't we fill people in on exactly what the heck went on? This is written by Ryan W. Neal. He said that uh, it's been a rough week for do-it-yourself investors who use Robinhood the mobile brokerage app that exploded in popularity by offering free trading long before the rest of the brokerage industry. As global markets were rebounding from the week before sell-off and the Dow experienced its biggest point gain since 2009, Robinhood was, wait for it, OG, inaccessible to its millions of customers for the entire trading day, shutting its users out of any potential gains. Service was restored the following day. Investors. <laughs> when the market went down another 4%. The investors who were hurt most were those who purchased options, one of Robinhood's most touted features, betting markets would continue falling the next day. When markets instead surged, Robinhood investors were unable to sell those options and had to eat it. Well, it doesn't say eat it, had to eat the losses, it says. Robinhood has faced several other setbacks recently, <laughs> including a $1.25 million fine levied by the Financial Industry Regulatory Authority for failing to ensure investors receive the best prices on securities orders. And uh, what are some other things that they've done? They, they, oh, the cash thing. Yeah, the cash. They said that we've got SIPC insurance and SIPC had to say, uh, that's not what uh, we do. No, you don't. 
you don't. That is not that is not what this is for. The SIPC had even reported them because it was a lie. Uh, then, uh, well, maybe it wasn't a lie. Maybe they're just incompetent. I have I have no idea. But why they're telling everybody that they have this insurance that doesn't apply is amazing. And then how about um, when they had to acknowledge that they were selling your orders, which by the way, I get all other firms do that, but they had to acknowledge that. And the list goes on and on and on. So uh, CEO the price of free. Yeah. This is the price of free co-CEO Vlad Tenev has criticized technology at traditional brokerages like Charles Schwab and Fidelity. Yet it was his digital first platform that struggled the most during one of the biggest trading days in recent memory. Uh, so anyway, like old Chuck's Chuck's sitting back in the ivory tower going, <laughs> yeah, we're the problem. We are the problem. So what's the, uh, what, what, what they, what they blame it on? Allegedly when they coded the site, they forgot to take into consideration that, um, two weeks ago we had a leap day. You're kidding me. This is like the Y2K thing finally happened. <laughs> Yeah. I was talking to some tech guys about it. I said, I said, this seems like a big miss. And and everybody I talked to said, nobody actually uses dates. You know, that's just more like consumer facing. But apparently uh, what was happening was they were just getting mismatch errors. So from a security standpoint, you know, one of the things that they look at is making sure everything kind of matches. Yeah. And so, oh, geez, computers logging in on the 1st of March but Robin Hood thinks it's the second of March and they're going, Whoa, he's trying to like do something shady error. Oh, and then multiply that by a million error, 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 error. Something shady was the other one. They were letting people have infinite amount of money on a margin. Remember that? Yes, that was great. <laughs> yeah. I wish I would have got that actually. That would have been, that wouldn't have been shady if I would have been able to do it, but shady that everybody else got it. Yeah. Here's what I don't understand. The infinite leverage glitch. It's like a Mario game. It's like <laughs> totally what this is. It's just straight up like Mario Kart coin did, money. Did you see that guy just passed away? The guy who created the cheat for Nintendo games where you go left, left, right, right, you know, up, down, and you get unlimited money? Up, down, up, down, select start? A, B, select start? Yeah, yes. Yes. That guy died. That's too bad. That guy passed away. But in uh, much more serious news, here's the point for me. How many times does a company have to mess up before you finally leave? Because what's funny is that the huge amount of money that's still with them today, there's no advantage anymore. Every other brokerage firm does what they do, OG, does, does the same stuff. And, and, and a lot of them have better tools. I'm with TD Ameritrade. I look at TD Ameritrade's tools versus Robinhood's tools. I get free trades there too. I'll take TD's tools any day over. Yeah, but you don't get every so often infinite leverage. No. Free margin. I don't get to work or, with apparently a bunch of tools managing money. I don't, I, I don't get it. I yeah. don't, I don't understand why you stay. And, and it pains me to say that, but I just don't, I just, I just wonder how many times a company can do this stuff. Apparently a lot. Apparently a lot. Like if you still have money at Robinhood, what what are you waiting for to finally make the move away? It's the price of free. But you know what's interesting about this is that this is the same thing that's going to happen on a much bigger scale with everybody forever 
when you take away the revenue stream from one area as it relates to brokerage business because Schwab and TD and Fidelity and E-Trade and Morgan Stanley and Merrill Lynch, everybody else, Bank of America, everybody who's got trading platforms, guess what? They make money. Like lots of money, lots and lots and lots and lots of money. And when you just say, oh, well, I'm going to nitpick this and I'm going to take that stream. You think that old Chuck sitting up there going, well, guess we're down $7 billion in revenue. Oh, well, I don't think so. He has to report to shareholders who expect things to get better every year. So, you know, guess what? Schwab's going to make more money next year than they did this year. Probably, you know, Fidelity's probably going to make more money next year than they did this year. How? They get rid of the trading commissions. The reason how is they just figure out a different way to do it. They take it from someplace else. It's not coming out of Chuck's pocket. Are you trying to say that free doesn't necessarily mean better? Is that what you're trying to say? What do they say? The um, crazy talk. Something about the devil you know versus the devil you don't. Something like that. No? Heard that a little bit? Uh, Something. Something. Anyways, so uh, something about a thing. This is just very whimsical a thing about stuff saying whimsical saying it was very perfect for this part of the interview that we were doing and i stepped all over it and now <laughs> i can't remember it so welcome to the very specific podcast i'm uh what's his name and this is who's it's talking about yada, my yada. bad yes anyways so robin hood sucks i'll say it and um there's other places too i don't think but. we have to say they suck we can say legally they have sucked. We, we can definitely say that. I'm not sure that they suck at this particular moment, but they have sucked at least four times in a short amount of time. Well, whether they have sucked, will suck, or currently suck, if you still have uh, money, like you said, with them, I think uh, you're the sucky one. You You got to be thinking. I think that's lesson number one. You got to be... You got to be wondering why. And then the second takeaway, looking to lock in that rate. Do it. (laughs) Rates are never going lower. What could possibly go wrong? Dave Mason is a guy who is not a finance writer. In fact, he and his wife were deeply in debt. I'm sure we'll talk to him about that in the basement. And they, instead of just going to the bookstore, the library and reading, listening to some podcasts, doing what most people do, you know what they did? They wrote a book. This is a love story and it's a story about getting your financial act together. Let's talk about some lessons about thinking about your money differently with Dave Mason. He's coming down to the basement. And here he comes, Dave Mason, coming down to the basement. How are you, man? I am fantastic. It is so good to be back, like in a real American basement. You know, where I live now in Jerusalem, the only basements come from converting old water cisterns they used to build under the houses back before we had indoor plumbing. So it's really cool to be down, like in a real plush basement, like the kind I grew up with in Connecticut. I don't know, though, man, a Jerusalem basement, then that would be not old school, old, old, old school. Old, old, old school. They're all stone and keeping water out of them is next to impossible. So half of them are moldy as can be. Yeah. Yeah. So none of that for me. Is this your first book? 
No, this is actually my fourth book. Is it really? Okay. I was like, because if it was your first book, I was thinking as I was reading it, I'm like, this guy's got something here, <laughs> but, but you've written quite a few books. Is this your first money book? This is my first money book. And I'm really into writing the things I need to know about. So most money books are written by money people who write money book after money book after money book. Me, I wrote a money book because I was struggling with money and I realized what I didn't understand was seriously hurting me. And for me, the best way to get to understand something is to research and write a novel on the topic. So that's why I want writing a money book. It'll probably be my only money book because <laughs> now I've got an understanding of money and now, okay, what, what's the next area that I'm seriously lacking in that I need to go explore? That's how I work. I want to ask about your money journey in a minute, but let's just dive into these characters because I've found the first couple chapters so far so compelling. We start off with this woman named Amber. Talk to me about Amber before the book, Dave. Who was Amber before page one on this book? Well, the funny thing is when I started off writing this book, Amber was only the third main character in the entire book. You know, she was the girlfriend of one of the two guys who were kind of like the main characters. It's a buddy book. These guys, Kyle and Dylan, and they wound up taking divergent financial paths at a certain point. And we kind of followed the two of them. And then Amber, Dylan's girlfriend, wound up bumping out Kyle and saying, no, 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 no. I'm far more important than you are. And then she turned to Dylan and said, actually, I'm more important than you are, too. You think this is a book about you? No, 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 no. This is a book about me. So Amber was a classic. She's an Italian-American girl, you know, the, you know, the son of an attorney, someone who grew up to value education, who believed you go to college, you go to grad school, you get yourself a good job. And she's solidly on that path. And she totally falls in love with this guy, Dylan, freshman year of college. This is seven years before the book begins. And when Dylan winds up going on this alternate money path, she's like, I can't believe this guy I believed in so much turned out to be such a loser. Turns her back on him, goes back, gets her degrees, gets her profession, and is just convinced that this is the way you build a solid life for yourself. Yeah, let's talk about that for a second, this alternative money path. She doesn't even give him enough time to think that it's an alternative money path, Dave. She is convinced that when he goes to Mexico and discovers, quote, something new, right, that, that, that he's, I don't know, joined a cult or something. And she just kind of writes him off from that point forward. Yeah. You know, when people go down to Mexico during college break, there's a big party scene down there. And she's like, he probably went down there, got himself into drugs, got himself into partying and this is not the type of life I want to build for myself. I want somebody who's stable to build something with. I can't be with some druggy loser. Forget about him. And she never gives him the time today because she is so convinced, as many young people I meet these days are, that like there's a strong path to success and she is on it. He has left it. Therefore, he's in Loserville. I want to talk about some of the people just to use that as a little jumping off point to some of the people that we've interviewed here on the show and some of the people that you know. You know, you have people that build their own furniture, that build their own house, live in the woods, the, the tiny house movement, all of these people that have decided to take a different path and have these different stories. Does Amber kind of represent the everyman and the way they look at somebody that chooses one of these other paths? Absolutely. And that's what was really important about Amber emerging as the main character. That's really why this became an Amber book when it started off as a Dylan and Kyle book. It's because Dylan is this person who sees a different path, understands it actually makes more sense. And at least for him, 
and says, okay, I will go down this path despite the hardships. Amber is stuck in this place of seeing this guy she really cared for, you know, seven years later and starting to understand that actually he's built something significant for himself. It takes her a little while to see that he's much more substantial than she thought and really goes through emotional struggle in trying to understand what is this other path and why is it good and why would I even want to consider this when the path I'm on seems so well beaten, so well proven, and she really struggles with it. And that's why she became the main character because someone like Dylan, who makes a very logical path, who looks at the numbers and says, wow, this makes sense to me, I will do it despite the hardships, is boring as can be when it comes to being a novel. People like, you love reading about struggle. It's the characters that are really grappling with something and totally tearing themselves apart over these choices. That makes an interesting character. And so Amber, because of all the emotion she had here, when she was just, all of her beliefs were really being called into question, she was struggling so much with that. That was so much more interesting than the process the other original main characters were on. But I think it also makes a struggle or it shows a struggle that a lot of people that go down an alternate path have their friends that, that walk the same path as everybody else. Dave don't understand what the hell these people are doing. Right. Don't understand. And, and I think that that means that this becomes not just for a guy like Dylan, this becomes not just a money struggle. It becomes a, I don't want to say an existential struggle, but there is this struggle between you and the way that people view you. And to some degree, you have to turn your back on that if you're going to actually give yourself a solid financial foundation. Absolutely. And Dylan really struggles with that. You know, there's a line that he speaks that really reflects my own life, which is that when I was finishing high school, there was tons of talk about college, tons of discussion about which school I should go to. The idea of not going to college never crossed my mind once. I hadn't the slightest idea what I wanted to study. I hadn't the slightest idea what career I wanted to pursue. But the idea of not going and getting a very long, very expensive education never occurred to me once. And I think it's that it was just such a given in the culture I grew up in. And I wouldn't know what to do with myself. I would have been ostracized. It was made more sense to put myself into a very long path of education despite the cost and despite not knowing what I really wanted out of it, then to suddenly find myself with nowhere to go, nothing to do and no friends to do it with and be looked down upon as a total loser by all of my friends and family. Yeah. And it's funny you say that because in online forums on Facebook or, or wherever you see people just very flippantly older people say, well, just don't go to college. And it's funny when you say that I remember those days for me and I'm not a young dude, Dave. And I remember what a loser I felt people were. And, and, and I hate to say that I was judgmental, but man, I went to a college prep high school. Everybody went to college except two people. And I remember how I felt about those people. I remember thinking, I do not want to be like that person. I'm going to college because that is the path to success. Like that, that's how ingrained in our society this is. And for somebody to flippantly say, well, just don't go to college, take a different path. It's, it's a little more thoughtful than that. Absolutely. And I, I want it making the same choice regarding grad school too. You know, not knowing what I wanted to do with myself. I went to law school because I had strong aptitude, not because I had a love of law. I got myself way into debt going through law school, practiced law for all of two years before leaving it and moving to Israel and starting my own business that I could have done out of high school. And still now I graduated in 2000 from law school. I still have 
law school loans that I'm paying back every month at this point for a career that I never used for more than, you know, two years. Do you use any of that stuff? Do you use any of the, of the legal stuff that you learned or any of the connections that you made? No, no. Yeah. And it was, it was all because of this aptitude and this thought that, but heck, if you're going to be a lawyer, Dave, that's awesome. I mean, I don't want to rip on lawyers, so, but my lawyer friends, by the way, as you know, know the best lawyer jokes, right? And you can make good money being a lawyer, but it's sad that you just did it. It sounds like out of, I don't know, this expectation, I guess, that you had. On that note, I want to talk about Kyle for a second. I want to uh, read to you from very early in the book. I mean, this is how early. This is page two. Didn't they understand that even if I could forgive Dylan for abandoning me, I had no interest in dating a loser? Dylan Dylan no longer crashed with his parents, but had only managed to upgrade to a tiny basement apartment. Kyle called the coffin. You make Dylan's existence sound absolutely horrible here, Dave. Is it really that bad for Dylan, or is this a heck of a lot of judgment on her part? Dylan is doing fabulous. Dylan has really built himself up an incredibly strong financial foundation at this point by not spending the huge amounts of money that Kyle had spent going through school. Rather than coming out of college and grad school a quarter plus million dollars in debt, Dylan had worked himself to the point where he was able to buy a quadruplex very quickly. And you know the reason why he's living in the, in the basement is because you're able to buy a building of up to four units, of up to four different apartments, and have it all considered to be your primary residence under U.S. law. And so he had to live in the building in order to make it a primary residence, which means he was able to get much better financing, a much better mortgage, much lower down payment on the building. So he wants to live in the smallest unit so that he can be renting out the three big units and living totally for free and have income coming in. In fact, he's done this multiple times during this seven-year period. You can actually take out a new primary residence mortgage every single year in the U.S., so if you're, if you're willing to move, you can be accumulating houses and each one can be up to four apartments big. So he's been doing this and he's been building up tremendous passive income sources, pr- tremendous assets, whereas Kyle's over a quarter million dollars in the hole from all of his education. Dylan is over a quarter million dollars in assets just from working hard, spending little and investing as much as he could. But to Amber, who is judging people's financial positions based upon their spending, who has no real access to see about you know what their bank accounts look like. She sees Kyle come there in a brand new car, fancy apartment. He's making a ton of money, but spending a ton of money. And she sees Dylan riding his bike, living in these ragged old clothes, living in a tiny little apartment, because Dylan is thinking, hey, you know, until I get to the point in my life when I really discover what my passions are, what I want my life to be about, what I want to really dedicate myself to, if I don't yet know that, the best thing I can do is build a really solid financial foundation so that I never have to take a job I don't like just for the money so that I can get to the point where I have my passive income totally exceeds my cost of living so that I can work on things even if they don't pay a dime if that's where my passion is later in life. So he's thinking totally long game. He's doing fabulous. But everything where you just read is in Amber's eyes at the beginning, totally judging people on what their degrees are and what their spending habits are, which are kind of the ways we tend to judge who is successful and who is not. And by the way, on a side note, we're now auditioning readers, voiceover people for the audiobook version. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
after that reading, I don't know if you want to like, you know, put in, throw in your hat, but it's, uh, it, we're, we're looking, we're looking to find that right voice for Amber for the audiobook, which we hope to bring out soon. This could have been my big break. Finally get you out of that basement. I know. I know. That's, a, that's, that's right. You go to the old school, old, the old, old school basement in Jerusalem. Uh, because you brought it up, I want to ask about Dylan's lifestyle here, because you make the statement that Dylan is doing great, yet on page 11, Amber asked Dylan about whether he's dated somebody else. Amber says, there were no other girls all this time, and he answers, a few, but my lifestyle choices were so different that dating was never easy. Amber asked, you weren't willing to compromise for a relationship, which by the way, Dave, as I'm reading your writing here, I'm asking the same thing. I'm like, really? But what if you really liked her? You wouldn't compromise for a relationship. Amber says, I'd certainly compromise plenty for my own. In the past seven years, I'd never fallen for a guy like I had for Dylan, but I still had a boyfriend more often than I didn't. How often had I spent time with a guy who I wasn't crazy about rather than be alone? Dylan answers, I compromise some, but I never felt great about it. We go out to dinner in a club. I could easily blow enough in a night to feed myself for a week. She then says, you never eat out. That was not going to fly with me. Dylan answers now. And again, I go out for business purposes, but it's been four years since I ate at a restaurant for fun. Not only that he rides a bike and he doesn't own a car. He wears to your point, he wears these old, old clothes it sounds like a hell of a lot of deprivation on his end. And if you look at the fact that there's a shot that we might not wake up tomorrow, I feel like to some degree, Dave, that Dylan is living for a future that may never come. He's giving away a lot of stuff today for this hope for tomorrow, like he's chasing a happiness later. What do you think about that assessment? It's definitely a take on Dylan. I want to make something very clear. Dylan is not the hero of this book. You know, if you have a nonfiction money book, most likely it is going to have a very clear path. It's going to be recommending do this, do this, do this. The thing I love about fiction books, the th reason why I wrote this as a novel rather than a nonfiction book, is you can explore so many different attitudes and paths. And one reader might really connect to one, one reader might really connect to another one. But the type of book I was writing necessitated making Dylan an extremist. Because if Dylan was willing to compromise, then Amber would compromise some, Dylan would compromise some. They'd have no problem getting together. The emotional tension and struggle that really makes the book come to life wouldn't have been there. So yeah, I made Dylan an absolute extremist. Dylan decided when he decided to drop out of college, he said, you know what? I don't want to live like a bum all my life, but early on while I'm young, I can do it. So I'm going to spend up to a decade to make myself financially independent and whether I get there or I don't, I'm going to basically have a lower standard. I'm going to take it down a notch from that point on. So like 10 years of working hard and not spending money. Okay. I feel like I can do that, but then that's enough. At a certain point, I need to start living my life. Like you're saying. And he also points out that, wow, this would have been so much easier if other people were doing the same, how hard it was for him when he was you know, he dropped out of school already. He was working a job. He was making money. He had income. His friends were in school accruing debt. So why were they spending so much more money than he was? You know, it seems to him, if everybody who wasn't making money wasn't so insistent on spending tons of money and digging themselves far into debt, they could have had a really good time together. But his friends were just so living in this debt world that they didn't care. They were spending it whether they had it coming in or not. 
And so he was really lonely. He really suffered as a result socially. So when I said he was doing great, I did mean financially in terms of yeah. his, his prospects from that point on were really great. Like he had the money he had already accrued was earning money and it was just making his path easier and easier and easier. It was making for a very easy financial future. But socially, he had to deprive himself tremendously. And again, he's not the hero. Some readers will hear what he has to say and say, yes, that's totally what I want. I totally feel like I can live on rice and beans for a decade <laughs> until I build up a whole foundation for myself. But a lot of people are going to say, oh, I'd never want that in my life. And that's fine. All I want to be doing is to be raising issues about money that people have never considered before. So that when you come out of reading this book, you've been exposed to real estate and taxes and credit cards, whole bunch of details, a whole bunch of strategies that you might have never occurred to you before. But now you know enough. You don't know enough to necessarily go out and buy a home the day you finish the last page of the book. You'll want to do some more research. But you know enough to know about concepts that had never crossed your path before and say, oh, wow. If I approach taxes this way, I can save myself a fortune every year. If I approach real estate this way, I can build equity rather than throwing it away in rent. So the whole idea is to expose you to ideas. But if all readers came out of this book implementing the same strategies, I'd consider this a failure. I want each reader to be seeing these different characters and these different perspectives, and they're battling it out in the book. And I think some will resonate with one and some will resonate with the other. And by the way, this is a huge reason why the book is a love story, because money is a tremendous cause of relationship strife. It's one of the top causes of divorce. And so much of that, I believe, is not even because two people have different philosophies of money. I think more often than not, it's because two people have zero philosophies about money and have grown up uncomfortable even talking about money. Like in my upbringing, we didn't talk about money. When I grew up, it was considered to be a rude topic of conversation. You didn't walk up to somebody and ask them how much they made. You didn't talk about money. It was a personal thing. So suddenly when I got married and now have a wife and we've got to plan our money together, well, you'd think, well, now obviously is the time to talk intelligently about money. But it's not like a switch. You can just flip on or off. <laughs> right. You don't know how. If, exactly. If you grew up uncomfortable talking about a topic, you don't suddenly get comfortable. So my wife and I, had we been discussing money early on and had we been reading books about money and le learning about different strategies about money and then discussing which ones made the most sense to us, I think we would have been on the same page very early. But each of us felt uncomfortable talking about money. We didn't discuss it. We didn't research it. We each tried to do things that would, we thought would please the other without really having open conversations. So, so much of what I want to do in this book is... You know, it's a relationship. It's a love story intentionally. I want people to read this and start questioning these different ideas and really to open the channels of dialogue, especially for couples, but really for anybody, but especially couples should be able to read this book, have the language now to have a conversation and to get themselves on the same page about money. I think people learn so much better through stories. And I think we're built for storytelling, which is why I like diving into this because if I'm interested in the characters and I love the fact that all the characters are to some degree flawed, like we all are, it, it makes it so much easier for us to dive in emotionally to these situations, not realizing that I might be learning something as I go. Right. I mean, that, that's, that's for me, a lot of the fun of it. I want to talk about making the book. You and your wife 
I want to know how how this project even started because this is this is to me the most fascinating thing. Like I can imagine the two of you sitting at a restaurant and and going, you know what, we got to do something. Well, let's start researching money. That doesn't sound like much fun for us. I'm an author. Let's let's instead start researching a book that will lead to better financial habits. Tell me the story. It's kind of a funny thing with my wife and myself that we started off a little bit backwards with money. You know, a lot of people struggle at first and then build the momentum. They're able to start doing better over time. We were the total opposite. Immediately, my business that I started when I moved to Israel took off and I was doing great until we started making more money than we needed. And then because we were conflicted about money, we felt kind of greedy, making more than we needed. We didn't know what to do with it. We didn't know how to invest it. We didn't know what we should be doing. We actually started making a lot of really stupid choices around money and got to the point where I, I almost lost my business and I had to basically fire everyone and pretty much start over. We actually did lose our house that we put a ton of money into. We invested more money into it than we could, than we could handle. And we really got ourselves tremendously underwater around money. And at a certain point, we kind of said, you know what? We need to start understanding this so much better. And my wife and I, at this point, we already finished one book that we'd done together called The Size of Your Dreams. And this was all a process about how to, how to manifest things in your life. It's, a, it's also a novel, but it teaches all these incredible life skills that we'd learned over time. And we'd finish that and it's like, okay, what is this next project going to be? Where are we going from here? And I felt this huge need to explore money. I felt like if I don't understand money, we're just going to continue making dumb choice after dumb choice that it's time we actually got ourselves an education. You know, to me, it's absolutely amazing how much time we spend in school. We were talking about our college and law school, like they were almost givens in my background, but at no point, middle school, high school, college, law school, did we ever have a course on money? I'm not talking about like economics, you know, department in college or anything. I'm talking about like how to spend money, how to invest money, what money is, how to deal with it. And so it was incredible for me to be in my 40s, have gotten myself tremendously in debt despite having early business success and never, ever really gotten a basic fundamental education about money. Like they're two different muscles. I mean, as funny as you're talking, I'm thinking you've got muscle A that you've built very tight but because muscle B, you never were able to flex, it, it almost brought you completely down. It brought me completely down. When I started making more than I needed to live on, yeah. I didn't know what to do with it. And so we hired more people than the business needed because I felt like, wow, I want to be able to spread the wealth. I want to be able to help other people. You know, Had I known about this concept of financial independence, I didn't know what to do with my excess money. And I knew that I was in a business. I was in e-commerce. I was very early in e-commerce. And I knew that the industry was changing not even year to years, like changing month to month. I knew that I was riding a wave that wasn't going to last all that long, especially because I was only working, I was trying to work less than an hour a day. It was a very part-time business for me. And had I known about financial independence, the idea of taking money out and putting it into passive income generating sources, I would have probably said, okay, you know what? I don't know how long this business is, is going to last me. I need to take out as much money as I can to provide for me for the rest of my life. Had I had a philosophy like that, I think in those first few years, we would have provided it for ourselves, we would have built a foundation that had the business not been able to continue, we would have been fine. But because we didn't know what we were doing, we exactly, we didn't flex that other muscle. And it just set us totally out of balance. What were some of the first places when you were doing research and trying to get on your feet financially, uh, Dave, what were some of those first resources that you found? Rich Dad, Poor Dad, 
was a tremendous resource for me. Secrets of the Millionaire Mind, which was all about, much more about the psychology aspect than the tactics. Yeah. I think Paula Pant was the first of the, the podcasters that I listened to. And then we from there went on to Bigger Pockets. We don't know Paula at all. <laughs> and then our friends over at Bigger Pockets. Gotcha. Yeah, good people. Uh, the book is The Cash Machine, A Tale of Passion, Persistence, and Financial Independence. You can see that I'm on uh, chapter two, and I've already got it pretty damn dog-eared, Dave. <laughs> so, so it is, which is which is cool because, as, as you so eloquently said, it's not a manual. It is a book, and it is an emotional ride, and I'm already... I'm already cheering for these guys. They're on a hike right now and they're having uh, quite the conversation while they're, they're on the hike. Uh, where can we get it, Dave? Amazon's the best place. And it's a, I made it a very cheap download. And for people who listen to the podcast, here's my thousand dollar guarantee that if you go and you buy the digital edition on Amazon and you feel like you haven't figured out how to raise your, your total net worth by at least a thousand dollars by the things you, you get in the book, then the book is yours as a gift. Write to me. Tell me you heard about it on Stacking Benjamins, and I will send you back whatever you paid for the digital edition of the book that I just wanted to get into people's hands. And I think the exposure to the different ideas, I've never seen a money book that exposes people to anywhere near as many ideas as this one does. A lot of them try to hit one idea very much in depth. This is much more of a broader idea, really making sure that we're filling in all the holes. We're showing you where you might be lacking in your money picture. And if you can't figure out how to make at least $1,000 or raise your net worth by at least 1000 bucks on this book, then I'd gladly give you back whatever you spent on it. Let's say I'm only, uh, what, 45 pages in and already the philosophy stuff that people will get from the beginning of this. When you get more tactical later on as I was flipping ahead, um, I can't wait. Dave, thanks for hanging out with us for a few minutes here and talking about building a cash machine. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Joe. It's great to be in the basement. Hey there, money nerds. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug. And all of Dave's cash machine talk you know, got me thinking, how's my money situation? I was doing a little research about the best way to ask for a raise at work, and I've come across one interesting piece of trivia. Now pay attention, because here comes your question. Apparently, during three special months in the year, you'll be more likely to get cash that you're asking for from your boss. So here's the question. Name me two out of those three months. I'll be back with your answer after this. Well, it's tax time. And if you are holding off on your taxes until you decide which tax platform to use, here's one. Free Tax USA was founded in 2001 by a CPA and a team of professional software developers. And it is one of the fastest growing tax websites online today. Over 43 million free federal tax returns have been filed with the IRS. The free service has 175,000 five-star reviews. I love reading in our basement Facebook group about happy people who have used free tax USA. We've had some incredibly glowing reviews of this product, which is why we wanted them to sponsor the show. Your maximum refund is guaranteed at free tax USA. Their free service includes basic premium and self-employed features Federal filing is free, even if you've got 1099 rental or small business income. Other services, of course, charge over 100 bucks to file those advanced tax returns. 
Common life events like having a child, going to school, and buying and selling a home, those are all covered without the need to upgrade. So how do they make money if it's called Free Tax USA? OG asked that. I did. Immediately. So how do they make money? Well, here's how. They make money from state tax returns and other optional services. Filing your federal and state taxes together, of course, is going to save you time. That'll improve accuracy. And for less than $15, it's an excellent value. Free Tax USA treats returning users right. No other service gives more to their returning users for free. They don't charge customers to archive, download, or print their old returns. And if you're coming from someplace else because you didn't use FreeTax USA in the past, well, you can import a PDF from TurboTax, H&R Block, or Tax Act. Customer support is free and accessible through their support center or email. There's no risk to try it. You don't pay anything until you're ready to file your return, create an account, and compare the results and price with your current tax software. So to learn more and to get 10% off, go to freetaxusa.com forward slash SB and use code SB. That's freetaxusa.com forward slash SB and then use code SB. Welcome back to today's Make More Benjamins trivia segment. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug. Here was your question one more time. Which three months in the year are typically the best time to ask for a raise? The answer, if you guessed January, June, or July, you'd be correct. January's great because you know even your boss is thinking about the new year and all the good things it brings. Uh, June and July, uh, it's probably because your boss has a little more time and everyone else isn't nagging him and nagging him. If you're thinking of asking today, though, not it's not very good news. Uh, but, you know, man's got to try. Man's got to try, right? Big thanks to Dave Mason for coming down to the basement. You know, OG, the one thing that he and I talked about that I thought was was really, really interesting is this idea of not going to college and about how so many people online, not to beat the dead horse, because I know Dave and I just talked about this, but so many people online say, yeah, just don't go to college. But the pressure and the way people think about people when they don't go to college, like they're like, well, so what kind of loser are you? Yet in the book, character who didn't go to college was the one that was coming out further ahead. And obviously, this is a novel. It doesn't always work out that way. But that peer pressure, I, I don't think can be understated. And there's nothing wrong with either one of those options, right? The college or no college option. The important thing is to have a little bit of a plan going into it, right? If you're, if you're just going to meander around for, you know, four or five years treading water, that's not great either. Yeah. So, you know, if you're going to go into a trade or you're going to do something like that, that's, that's great. Do it, get to it, you know? So. Hey, let's throw out the Haven Lifeline and tackle some of life's most important questions. Our friends over at Haven Life Insurance Agency, they put what you value first, your loved ones and your time. That's why they made buying quality term life insurance actually bam simple. Head to stackybenjamins.com forward slash Haven Life now to get a free quote. By the way, OG BAM was not in my script. I just oh, I, I added that. I I put a little uh who who's who's the uh the chef? BAM. Emerald. Emerald. Emerald Lagasse. I just Emerald Lagasse the Haven Life stuff. Their application is simple. You get an instant coverage decision. Prices are affordable, and all policies are issued by their parent company, Mass Mutual, more than a hundred and sixty-year-old insurer. Today, we're gonna throw out the lifeline to Red. 
Red asks us, hey, Joe, what if a spouse contributes to a traditional 401k? I can contribute to a traditional and a Roth 401k. What happens in retirement when we file taxes together? Do I end up paying taxes on traditional 401k and pay now for the Roth 401k? Paying taxes both times? What are your thoughts? Thanks, Red. Let's talk about that, OG, because this is a lot of people don't understand the difference between a traditional and a Roth 401k, or frankly, the same thing when it comes to IRAs and how those get taxed. So I think, you know, where we want to start is kind of, like you said, the difference between that traditional 401k and the Roth 401k. And just like a traditional IRA and a Roth IRA, how they look the same, they behave a little bit differently. So if you hear the word traditional, you're getting a pre-tax benefit. So that means that there's no taxes on the money going in. So if you make $50,000 and you put 10000 into your traditional 401k, when you go to file your taxes, you will file and pay taxes based on the fact that you made 40000 So you get an immediate tax deduction on that. If instead you put that into a Roth 401k, there is no tax deduction. So you take make 50000 you put 10000 into your Roth, you file your taxes, you're paying taxes on 50. So that's the big difference, whether you get a tax deduction today or no tax deduction. While the money's sitting there, both of those accounts grow tax deferred. So there's no taxes or anything while it does what it does. So you put your money in, it keeps on growing. And then when you take the money out, this is where the difference is again. If it's a traditional 401k, you're going to take that money out. Remember, you've never paid taxes on that before. Now you got to pay taxes. So you put in 10,000 every year for 20 years, that's 200,000 and it grew to 400,000. And then this year you take out 10,000 bucks. When you file your taxes, you're going to write plus 10 K. That's how much you earned on the Roth side of things. All of that money is tax-free forever. So that's the advantage of that. So if you've got a combination of both of those, you've got one, your spouse has a different, you'll just pay taxes based on where that money came from. You know, so if one year you say, I'm going to take all my money this year out of the Roth. Well, then you don't have any taxes. If the next year you say, I'm going to take all my money out of the traditional 401k. Well, then you're going to have taxes. The nice thing is that the custodians are keeping track of all this for you. You do not have to do this. I would keep track of it anyway, but you don't have to because they are on top of it. And every year you get a tax form, you just give to your CPA, or if you do free tax USA, then you can, um, you know, you just follow the instructions when you're, when you're putting your information in and it will categorize it in the right place and tax you appropriately. So no, you're not getting double taxed. There's benefits to both sides of it. The nice thing that you're doing inadvertently, it sounds like is you're giving yourself some options down the line. Yeah. You'll have, you'll have the ability to, to decide where do you want your tax benefits, tax penalties or whatever to come from. Yeah. There's some, uh, taking one, I guess, bird in the hand now to put it the way mom does so that we take advantage of tax rates where they are today and not knowing where they're going to be in the future, OG, but then leaving yourself, like you said, some flexibility. That's the idea. Yeah, good stuff. Thanks for the question, Red. You got a question for us? Call the Haven Lifeline. It's stackybenjamins.com forward slash voicemail, and uh, we can answer your question. That's going to do it for today. Hey, big thanks to everybody who has, and we've had a, a nice influx of new listeners we, we really have to thank a couple of publications for that. The Simple Dollar put us on a list of uh, top financial podcasts. So big thanks to Trent Ham and the team at The Simple Dollar. And also big thanks to one of my favorite publications, Fast Company, 
for putting us on a list of six podcasts that will make you smarter. Fast Company is going to ruin our reputation. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> it was that was very thrilling because of the six podcasts on the list. We were the only finance related podcast, and the piece intimated that while most financial podcasts are pretty boring, this one is is not. So if you're readers of either one of those publications, welcome to the basement. Glad that that you're here with us. And lastly, if you're somebody who needs better financial planning help in your corner, looking at juggling all the different things going on in your life, OG and his team of advisors have the doors open right now for new clients. Head to stackybenjamins.com forward slash OG to interface with him and his team. That's going to do it for today. Doug, you've got it from here, man. What should we have learned today? So what should we have learned today? First, take some advice from Dave Mason. Building your cash machine probably means looking at the world a little differently. What are you missing just because you're looking at the world like everybody else? Second, using the Robinhood app or some other brokerage account where it's clear you aren't getting a great deal, take the time to make sure you have the right partners in place. Partners that won't let you down when you need them. But the big takeaway... Make sure to ask for a raise during the right time of the year. Joe and OG said they'd have been happy to give me a raise today, but they didn't want to undermine the whole point of my trivia. I'm shooting myself in the foot here. On the bright side, though, I I did talk to those suckers and got a free sizzler appetizer coupon out of them. Ha! I played them like a fiddle. Special thanks to Dave Mason for stopping by the basement. You can find Dave's book, The Cash Machine, through our show notes at stackingbenjamins.com. This show is created by Joe Salcihai, produced by Richie Rudder-Reese, and engineered by the amazing Steve Stewart. Online, visit us on Twitter at SBenjamin'sCast or on our Facebook page. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and I'm wondering if KY Jelly is actually made in Kentucky. SB Podcasts may receive payment on the show from sponsors and guests in the form of books, giveaway items, discounts, or other remunerations. That's a big word. There's no way you take advice from these dorks, but like Joe's mom always says, don't take advice from people you don't know. This show is for entertainment purposes only. And before making any financial decisions, consult with a real financial advisor. What a a strange world we live in. I hope it gets better soon. I worry very much about um, 
about people that have to travel a lot during this? Again, another thing that I saw on the internet. So it must be anything, true. It's got to be 1 million percent true. But if anything comes out of this, hopefully it's a non-event, which that's kind of what I'm hoping. But um, it's that maybe we'll figure out that most travel is useless. That we don't need to you travel know? so much. Yeah. I mean, business travel in particular. Oh, I mean, obviously but, travel yeah, business, for, sure. You know, yeah. like... I remember when we moved to, uh, when we moved to Dallas six years ago, like you had a practice in Michigan where people were used to walking into the office, seeing my assistant, having a coffee, you know what I mean? Like there was that tactile relationship, so to speak. And I remember having the conversation with him, like, listen, what does it matter where I am the other 363 days that we're not meeting? If I still came to Michigan for meetings those two days a year, presently you don't know whether or not I'm in the office the other 363 days. Now you're just going to definitely know I'm not sitting in the office the other 363 days. I'm just in a different office, you know? And it took a second for people to get used to that. And then that changed to, well, once a year. And and now for some people, you know, we see them once a year, but a lot of times, you know, we just do most stuff on the phone. And the funny thing is, is that I think we're more productive, you know, you get it because, done. well, we get it done. And it's also, it takes out all of that BS that was associated with going to the meeting in the North. Of course, it's the weather and snow and, you know, cold or sick. I mean, you can do a meeting with your financial advisor if you got a cold and not be a jerk about it. Right. Like you'd, you don't want to send your kids to school with a cold. Don't do that, especially now. <laughs> but, but I mean, before you'd say, oh gosh, I don't know. Should I go? You, you know, your clients and they're like rubbing their nose and touching everything. You're like, really? This is, you decided to come here and spread your germs. Now you can do it, right? You can do your meeting while you're commuting. You can do your meeting while you're on your lunch break. So I think it's more productive and it certainly saves a crap load of money to not have to drive across the country or, or a county. And if you're a business pro that you're losing all your frequent flyer status, but you know, so what? A, uh, a woman I was having a virtual meeting with today was telling me that she was on a plane and the woman next to her kept sniffling. And then at one point she looked over and the woman had just, had just rubbed her nose and this huge, huge, line of snot came out of her nose and went straight down. And she literally looked over at this lady sitting next to her and just went and sucked, <laughs> and sucked it all back in. Patient zero. <laughs> and she immediately thought, I'm going to die. <laughs> this is how it ends. Yep. Well, stackers, the show might be over, but the celebrations are just beginning because it is Military Appreciation Month that I want to celebrate people like my brother-in-law, Eric, who is such a giving person. Eric will do just anything for you. And as a Marine, you can see that his time in the military taught him to be a guy who gives to his community, gives to his family, and is always there when you need them. This Military Appreciation Month, Navy Federal Credit Union wants to celebrate members like Eric who go above and beyond. Navy Federal offers member-only exclusive rates, discounts, and tools to empower their members and help them reach their goals. Navy Federal's employees 
are part of the community they serve. Many of them are military family members, reservists, or veterans, and all branches of the military, veterans, DOD, employees, and their families are eligible for Navy federal membership. In fact, there are so many resources on the Navy federal website, resources like best cities after service to help veterans transition to civilian life and best careers for military spouses to support military families. Visit NavyFederal.org slash celebrate, and you'll see all of their Military Appreciation Month offers and other Navy Federal offers. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, Equal Housing Lender.